like I, I would suggest like if anyone's interested like just promotion for Brad's book here Edgar's Worst Sunday buy it on Amazon because it's like A not very expensive B like what do you got to lose you probably buy stupider things on Amazon on a day to day basis just like, <laughs> you know, like oh yeah I need a bike pump kind of thing so I mean like yeah just put it along with your next purchase grab it if you hate it write a bad review if you like it write a good review either way it's a review <laughs> You promised me, you said you would You gotta give in, so I'll be good Tell me a story, then I'll go to bed This is Tell Me a Story with Bo and the Juggalo That's right I am Bo, and to my right is the Juggalo I'm the Juggalo, Brad, feeling extra juggalicious today <laughs> um, Bumping that new album, Fred, Fearless Fred Fury Flip the Rat as well They, really, they released two together What about Fearless Fred Penner? <laughs> well, I think he was one of the inspirations, of course. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah an another musical genius for, from er an, an earlier time, I suppose, but also our lives. Yeah, yeah. We both met him on two different occasions. Like you met him, and I met him independently, right? Yeah, I don't think we've ever met him together. No. <laughs> yeah, I, I went to a music festival where he was playing, and I got him to sign my guitar. Okay, yeah. I've seen him at several concerts. I've only like met him and shaken his hand and spoken to him the one time. He was um, the first music that I liked when I was a kid. So uh, it was a Way big up there deal. With me too, yeah. It was a big deal. He was my favorite thing when I was a kid. So I was like, I brought a guitar to the place because it was like we were camping out or whatever. And then I saw that he was playing. I was like, I've got to get him to sign my acoustic guitar. And so yeah. I went over there brought my acoustic guitar and went like, hey man, you're the first music I ever liked. You like, if it wasn't for you, it wouldn't like inspire. And then he signed all over us. He was the nicest guy in the world. Yeah. He, he seems incredibly sincere and good. Yeah. And he had an adult set too. He had a kid set and an adult set. He still does that. Yeah. It's fucking crazy. I yeah. saw him at the Needle Vinyl once and I saw him, what's that place? I think it's closed down now. It was way out just past the Shaw. Uh, oh yeah. I know what you're talking about. Ah, it's like a really sweet dive venue. Yeah. Um, oh, God, what was that called? Uh, Either way, I saw it used him to there be a once. jam space too. Yeah. Yeah. That's a weird place for Fred Penner. He played his adult show there. Cool. Yeah. And, and to clarify, if people don't know about Fred Penner or haven't seen either these shows, the adult show. Fred Penner's not on stage like burning Bibles and swearing. <laughs> it's nude, not a lot nude. different from the kids' show. It's yeah. just at a bar. Well, and it's like that he doesn't play kids' songs. It's not like he's playing... Yeah, he does. He well, plays a sandwich song. He plays Cat Came Back. <laughs> he played Cat Came Back in the adult show, uh, show that I saw, but he played, like, songs. Like, he played, like, folk songs. Like, folk covers and stuff. And just played, like, Bob Dylan and, like, the mamas and the papas and stuff and I was like cool like this is rad man well I think he was always the kind of performer that was inspired by a lot of the old folk songs the same way yeah. that Pete Seeger or somebody like that was right taking pieces of American or even world music and kind of bringing it into his own vibe yeah, yeah well he was from that age like of the, like the Simon and Garfunkel and all that kind of stuff he just went like I'm gonna write kids songs instead and he was really good at it and he lived in a log <laughs> <laughs> His um, Ghost Riders in the Sky was a cover of Cash's, right? Yeah. yeah. Okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's, that, that's that was my something first exposure he does in his, it, his adult set as well, yeah. Yeah, he's... Fuck, man, that guy's amazing. That was on my childhood album, Ghost Riders in the Sky. Really? Uh, I listened to that as a kid, yeah. Yeah, he, he like, really inspired me musically. Like, I, I, I don't know how, but, like, how to explain that other than just, like, when I was a kid, I remember just thinking that, like... I, I don't know, I, th I think I got different stuff, you know, like when you're a kid and you like, you, you listen to like Mary Had a Little Lamb and shit like that, is that never was a thing that I was like, I never enjoyed like the kids songs or like the Sharon Lewis and Bram stuff, yeah. but like, I felt like songs like The Cat Came Back and stuff like that, they sounded like real songs, like mm -hmm. they weren't just like, dun 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 dun, like yeah. goofy like, <laughs> a feather in his hat kind of shit. And That's it's a sophisticated song. Though. Yeah, so it kind of made me like look at it a little like it was the first thing that didn't feel like music was talking down to me as a kid you know that's not patronizing yeah that. yeah and it was awesome it's just it was fun it was funny too like you had funny songs yeah who fun. wouldn't eat a hundred sandwiches at once you if you had them <laughs> answer me <laughs> <laughs> show me this man or a woman so today i have a story slash multiple kind of uh, there's a few little components to this 
And I'm going to kind of butcher a couple of these things because I'm doing a lot of this off of memory. So uh, if anyone's more of an expert on this than me, I apologize for all the mistakes I make. But so, Bo, what you're saying is that you are speaking as the comprehensive authority in this story and that every detail <laughs> should, should be taken as fact. Yes. This all is right. more me telling you, someone who probably doesn't have a lot of familiarity about th with this, as much as I know about this to kind of get you interested. And if anyone else is like Brad in the room here, it's, uh, it's the same thing. Okay. Okay. So what I'm going to tell you about is Motown and the Funk Brothers. I dig it. So Motown Records, if you're not familiar with it, it was, came out of Detroit and it was like a... It, it, I'm going to get distracted so many times in this story <laughs> talking about music from Detroit. Yeah, I know. Exactly. <laughs> it's right up your alley. It's music from Detroit. And it was uh, like a late 50s, early 60s, roughly when it started. But the basic idea was it was a record label that was all black. Like it was like the first black run record label. Like the uh, guy who run the studio, the producers, everybody was African American. Everyone who recorded there was too. And. Um, Basically, the idea was they were going to... Do you think they had a strict rule, or um, is that just kind of how it shook out? I don't know. I, I'm trying to think if there's any white people on Motown, and I don't think there was. It'd be hard to pull off. Yeah, I really don't think there was. And it was kind of one of those things where it's like... Like, I think the idea at the beginning was they're like, hey, we're doing this for us in, in our neck of the woods to kind of be like more down to earth. And like in the 50s, I doubt... A lot of white people would want to record with a black record label as well, right? Right. So um, this is one of those places where, like, they were like, okay, we're going to become a juggernaut of black music, like, was the concept. So the idea was they were going to write pop hits. There was going to be, like, songwriters that would write for singers. The singers would come in and just d do what they did. Like, for, for instance, like, the Supremes, like, Diana Ross and, like, uh, um, the Temptations, The Miracles, Marvin Gaye, Contours, Jackson 5, Four Tops, all that kind of stuff. Like uh, like Lionel Richie, Stevie Wonder, like... Luther Vandross. Luther Vandross, every, Al Green, like everybody that you recognize from that period of time was all put out on Motown Records. So, and like, I know I'm forgetting some here. Was George Clinton on it? Eventually, yeah. Okay. George Clinton was second era. Like, it was... Motown Records changed into the 70s because it was like... Is one of those things where, and I think eventually it like Interscope, like ate them up or something like that. But um, but for the longest time they were putting out like these acts where it was like, um, like the Supremes, the Four Tops, uh, the Temptations, like where it was like four people they all sang, and uh, there would be like one lead, kind of like a boy band basically. Right. And they do these things where they would just pump out a song, put it on a single give it to the radio stations. Radio stations would play it. All the black people would be like, this is the music we all grew up listening to. This is fucking awesome. First time it's been on the radio kind of thing. Right, and right. everyone's losing their goddamn minds because it's the first time that it's it's not just like blues or like like uh, the like the rock and roll kind of like Little Richard kind of style music that people are hearing over the radio. Yeah. Especially for black people in the US. Like They've heard songs like this before in their live venues and stuff like that. But there's no recordings of these. Like, it's all live recordings. So this all started in Detroit? It all started in Detroit, yeah. Why do you think the most revolutionary and amazing musical scenes <laughs> always come out of Detroit? I honestly think that Detroit, like, if I'm being dead honest, I honestly think that people in Detroit are just cut from a different cloth. Like, like honestly, like... It seems to be true. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of like New Jersey in that way, where, like, there's a certain type of person that lives in New Jersey, in the same way that there's a certain type of person that lives in Detroit. And, and both are defined by a kind of blue-collar, very struggling yeah, yeah, like, kind of work ethic. Also, like, the streets kind of thing, like, like RoboCop set in Detroit. <laughs> the Crow is set in Detroit. Like, Big money vibe. hustlers are set in <laughs> yeah, Detroit. Yeah. There's, like, everyone knows what Detroit York, looks maybe. like. Yeah, it's New York. But, but but granted, at this time, like in the fifties, sixties, Detroit was like the the money place. Like that that was like the boom town. Like everyone, like General Motors is there. They're at the height of like they're putting out Corvettes and shit like that. You know, like yeah, it's, it was on its way to being Gotham for a little while. Yeah, it it was fucking wild. So at this time, it was there was a lot of black people working uh, factory jobs there. 
because that's just kind of the, the nature of how things went. So a lot of this stuff started by just like like working class black communities being able to buy records and they saw like, hey fuck, they have the money to buy records, let's make records for them kind of thing. It ends up exploding nationwide, being arguably, and I'm gonna say arguably, but just because I think I'm a little biased, but the biggest record label of all time, kind of thing. Like, out of nowhere, every band recorded in the same area that they called the Snake Pit, which was like this horrible recording space that like every musician plugged into one amp and the app was mic the drums had two mics on them and they just played live and whatever got picked up got picked up kind of thing okay um they had an air like it was like boiling hot in this place all the time because it was like soundproofed so they had an air conditioner that had to turn off every time people were recording because it would pick up <laughs> so everyone was like sweating and like taking their clothes off and recording <laughs> and shit like that and it was just a fucking disaster and so you could imagine like back in the day like Smokey Robinson's in there and like just fucking shirtless listening to the songs. And the, the like, it, it was informally, well, not informally, I think more just like pop culture known as Hitsville, USA. Right. Which right. was, I'm sure we've all heard of that, but it's, yeah, the basic idea was they made more hits than every, every other record studio. And it's because what they were focusing on was it wasn't like, we're putting out an album. They are like, we're putting out a song. Like, we're just gonna get a song, put it out. We got My Girl. My Girl's now a big hit. You know, kind of thing. And so, like, it's, it's hard to put into the scope just because, like, a lot of the times I think people go, like, oh, yeah, Motown Records, and kind of forget some of the influences. But it's like, like I was saying, like, My Girl, uh, like, everything by Smokey Robinson's, like, Contours, Marvin Gaye is the big one. But, but What like, about Soul Train? Does that fit in this? Uh, Soul Train was basically, like, it, it was a little after this, but it was... It was like the second generation. Like if we wouldn't have Soul Train if it wasn't for Motown, because okay. Motown put out all of the music that went to Soul Train, basically. Right. Which is fucking wild to think of that it was that big of a thing. But and Clinton was like second generation of this. He said. Yeah, yeah. Clinton was inspired by this era. This was like the OG, like original black recording music that wasn't the blues, basically. How did you ever learn or get into uh, George Clinton? Uh, that's a good question. I don't know. <sighs> to be honest, I think it was. Was he big in Winnipeg? No. <laughs> no. I, I think it Rich was, was uh, to be honest, uh, w watching um, uh, Purple Rain. I, I, okay. And I think by watching Purple Rain, I was like interested in um, what's his name? Uh, the, the other character in that, who's like his competitor. Uh, Morris Day in the Time. It was the band was called Morris Day in the Time. And I okay. remember being like, what the fuck's this? And I like went down a Google hole and then eventually got to George Clinton because of course you get to George Clinton and Bootsy, uh, Bootsy Collins, the guy with the fucking star sunglasses and like, <laughs> plays the bass shaped like a star and has platform shoes and shit. <laughs> like it's hard to miss those guys as soon as you do a couple of Googles. Yeah. So I got into like that when I was maybe like 13 or 14. Okay, nice. Yeah. But I, I've always been like, I was kind of like my mom was really into the Beatles but she was also like big into like like black music which was odd because we're really white family yeah. <laughs> but like so like I remember hearing all these songs like the like my girl and stuff like that and like um, stand by me and uh, there's like Otis Redding songs and shit like that so I like kind of grew up on that like, this music and I had no idea that it was a thing until like way later in life that Motown like when somebody explained to me that all of those things came from the same place, I was like, what? <laughs> like, no way. Like, no way every black artist came from the same recording studio. <laughs> it, kinda, it, it just blew my mind kind of thing. So this this was like a big deal when I first realized this, which I you know realized probably around the same time as I was discovering George Clinton. Right. It's like it leads you there. Mm -hmm. And so this is the odd thing about this is so back, because of how it's done that they s seek out singers and go, we're recording a hit, they had to have a house band. So all of these songs that we know were recorded by one band called the Funk Brothers. 
Okay. And this is kind of where my story begins on the Funk Brothers. So they're really the most successful group of all time. Um, okay, they've recorded more number one hits than the Beatles, the Beach Boys, the Rolling Stones, and Elvis combined. <laughs> nice. <laughs> to put it in perspective, that, that is a thing where when I first heard that, I was like, wait a second, doesn't Elvis have like over 100 number one hits or something? And it's like, yeah, it turns out they have like... 450 or like 600 number one hits or something like like it's it's fucking outrageous like th- th- these guys were the best artists of all time did they get paid for it well funny that you asked back then um the way that it, uh, the way that copyrights work is a little different nowadays too even but uh who would get the credit was who was considered the songwriter so when you look at liner notes in a CD or something, and it says, like, written by Diana Ross. Yeah. Diana Ross gets all the money. So any other sort of deal is made through, like, a, you know, like, there's all sorts of different types of contracts you would do nowadays if that was the case. Like, if it said, like, written by Diana Ross, and there's, like, a band playing with her, the band would be like, okay, we get this much up front, and then we get this much off of residuals and whatever, and there's a contract. Yeah. Back then, they were like, here's 50 bucks. 50 bucks a song, and they were like, 50 bucks a song? Yeah. Fuck yeah, that's amazing. That's what I figured. Which really fucking sucks, because uh, the reason why most people haven't heard of the Funk Brothers is precisely for this reason. Because the Funk Brothers kind of just, like, as soon as they stopped recording, nobody gave a fuck about them. They weren't on TV shows or anything, because they're just living, ever heard of. living in their houses, uh, <laughs> cooking meals for their families and stuff. <laughs> like, they're not, like, rich people or anything. And, uh, yeah, it, it was a fucking shame because, uh, like, the main main player in this whole thing is this guy named James Jamerson, who, worst name ever. But, uh, I was going to say. But he used to be an upright jazz musician, like, he played upright bass. The bass, yeah. Yeah, and so he played jazz, and he had a really unique style of playing jazz at the time. He switched to electric bass, which is, like, the standard bass guitar that you see in most bands. At the time, before he started everyone played like like it's hard to explain but like if you've ever heard like old country albums kind of thing where like you hear the bass and it's going like bum 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 and it's like really straightforward everything's simple he almost like carnival-esque yeah yeah just really yeah really plodding yeah it's the tuba it was basically the tuba of the band which is kind of fucking dumb uh, like looking back now and now knowing today's music, but he was the first guy to go, hey, I'm going to take what jazz does on bass and turn it into pop songs. And so like, to put into perspective, every bass player that you know is a bass player nowadays, it's because of James Jamerson. Huh. He was the first guy to like, Flea wouldn't be Flea if it wasn't for James Jamerson. George Clinton wouldn't be around because Bootsy Collins wasn't playing the way he did kind of thing like the whole funk style is based on this guy everybody that's ever played bass owes it to this dude and he okay so back in the day when you play upright bass you'd use one finger to play you'd like pluck it from the side yeah. and usually like one or a couple fingers up top to like do, do the do, like push down the actual notes because you can't spread out all your fingers and play it like an electric guitar kind of thing because it's pretty thick strings. Well, it's spaced out like the areas where you have to go. You might as well slide to them. So he learned how to play with like a couple of fingers, and he switched to that style of bass, and would just plant down and go like and do these like crazy little licks with his thumb and his his couple of fingers on this fucked up bass that had a warped neck and was like. Basically, if you bought that bass nowadays, you'd be like, this is garbage, I can't use this. <laughs> and he recorded everything on it. So, this guy basically, like, invented, um, invented a style. Like, you know how, like, examples, like when I was saying My Girl, like that, bum, 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 Oh, okay. At the beginning, imagine that wasn't the thing that people did until that song. And this guy just brought that sensibility, where, where you would have like, uh, like, like the Jackson Five songs. Like I don't know if you're familiar with like Jackson Five, like uh, like I Want You Back or anything like that. Has that bass line, like that dum, do 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 do. Okay. That's so that's that kind of when a, the bass became a more active part of it with all him. Yeah, all him. 
So everybody that, like, everybody that wasn't playing jazz, jazz bassists were all doing that. They were all doing that on the uprights back in the day. Where it gets weird is nobody was doing that on electric bass because there was, like, a divide. There was, like, jazz guys, pop guys, R&B guys, whatever. And he was just like, whatever, I'm recording it all now because <laughs> that's all they got. Right. So he just took those jazz sensibilities and went, like, I'm going to do all this shit on, on an electric bass. The drummer that worked with him had no clue what the hell to do with him doing that. <laughs> so the drummer just laid it down and just let him go free. So you hear a lot of the times in these songs, like, um, just wild ideas. Like, wild, wild, wild ideas. And so while we're talking here, I'm going to, not on mic because it's really annoying to do that. But um, I tried that once before in an episode that didn't actually get put out. But uh um, and it sounded like garbage, but I'm going to play this song in the background for just me and you to listen to. And it's what I'm going to play is the isolated bass um, uh, to uh, uh, to what's going on by Marvin Gaye. Do you know the song? I believe so. Yeah. 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 It's you. You get the. And this will be him playing it. Yeah. This is isolated. Just what he was playing on the song. You kind of. It's kind of muddy just because like they take out. It's tone is muddy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. His tone, the 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 tone of the music is muddy because, the, like, they had to take out the rest of the music so you could hear it better. So they it kind of doesn't have the best quality. But um, basically, what you're gonna hear is a guy just freestyling on bass because he had all the time and space in the world to do whatever the hell he wanted. And so the basic idea is. He's fooling around. Right. But, like, you kind of get a groove out of this, and you get kind of like a... He's telling a story with the bass. He's bringing you on a journey. Right. Well, and, and he, it's natural to do that with a guitar, isn't it? Like, people do that all the time. Kind of, but guitar is more chord-based. So the tricky thing with bass is you're going to have to, like... You're gonna have to tell a story in like individual notes. Like you're gonna have you to play like, a guitar like that. It's, it's a little bit like that, like a riff or something. Yeah, yeah. And you kind of do like a vocal line. But the trickier thing with this is it's more rhythm based, right? So you're getting like, you know, like kind of thing. And yeah. you're like, that's a cool little like line going on there, where it has it has a journey to take you on. And he was the expert of just doing that off the cuff. They didn't have enough time to write things down for him and go, this is your line. So they just go like, it's an A, go. <laughs> you just go. And so a lot of these songs were written like that. So you would get like somebody coming in, like Jackson 5 coming in, Michael Jackson as like a fucking seven-year-old coming in to record something, yeah. just laying down cr incredible vocals. And then they go, okay, James Jameson, like, you heard it, now play the bass. Go. And they all just go. And the whole band just starts playing. And they would do like two or three takes. That's good. That was the version you heard on the radio. Jesus. So these guys are like consummate professionals. I, I, I'm saying like some of the best musicians you'll ever hear in your life kind of thing. And so there's a, there's a couple other guys. Like there's this guy named Richard Pistol Allen who was um, a, drum, a drummer who, who... I don't think I've heard that name. Yeah. Most of these guys are like... Like list off a couple of these. Like Eddie Bongo Brown, Earl Van Dyke... Robert White, Eddie Willis, like these are all guys that like they, you've never seen their names printed anywhere because they got paid fifty bucks. <laughs> yeah. So, so the trick is like unless you're talking to like a nerd who's like obsessed with bass or drums or something, most of these guys will never be brought up. What was the name of the guy who pretty much invented bass styles again? Uh, James Jamerson. And w w so, where does he end up? Uh, he ends up basically living out the same kind of life we have, just doing gigs. Playing, playing with the Funk Brothers on tour, playing all their hits, and uh, at the end, well, th there's there's a great documentary about this called Standing in the Shadows of Motown, and there's a point in it where uh, they're doing like a, a Motown Achievement Awards kind of thing, right. and the Funk Brothers weren't even invited, and they had to buy tickets off of scalpers to get him. Jesus. <laughs> yeah, so that, that gives you an idea of like where they are appreciated. After that documentary, came out and it was kind of like a resurgence of them and you can kind of see like people respecting it a bit more right but for the longest time those were guys that like were just lost to history and 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 basically invented an entire style like 
the, my girl, I heard it through the ba grapevine, signed, sealed, delivered, uh, Papa was a rolling stone, heat wave, ain't no mountain high enough, like, <laughs> like ridiculous fucking shit here. And so, basically, Motown Records changed the landscape of, of black music, uh, changed the landscape of Detroit at the time, because before then, Detroit didn't have a, like, a huge music scene, and next thing you know, all the biggest musicians in the world all live there because they have to record there. And so you just get like this incredible stimulus to Detroit's economy, you get crazy ass shit happening all around, and um, eventually leads to you know funk music, funkadelic all stars, and all that stuff. And uh, Parliament. Yeah, and Parliament. <laughs> Years later, this becomes there's the New York City blackout. Which was uh, 19, 1978, 1979? I don't know if you remember the exact year. I don't. So New York City had a blackout. It was a fucking disaster because this big fucking... I know of it, yeah. I don't know the year. So, yeah, yeah. So basically what happened that year was there was a bunch of, like, poor black people living in New York City that just went, were like, hey, the, let's steal some stereo equipment. And they did got a lot of turntables out of it, and ended up inventing rap music. Rap music was started on a fundamental of samples. Samples were all based on what was called a break beat, which was where music would stop for a bit, and you would just hear the drums going, and it would be like a little beat. It was called a break beat, because it was in a break. And uh, these, these were all from uh, Motown records, because they'd often have like a side of the record where it was just a band fucking around on a B-side. Okay. So they would grab like the drummer and the bass, like just isolate it and then loop it and those became break beats which is where break dancing started and why break dancing called break dancing um there's a guy named uh clyde stubblefield who's a drummer who is th the drummer that you've heard the most in your lifetime that has never been paid for it because he's it's like every 808 is him or something like that well it's every break beat you've ever heard is is him like every rap song up until about 1993 had a clyde stubblefield beat in it which is fucking insane. So, so here's the that's basically the legacy of the Funk Brothers in a nutshell, and that's that's my Funk Brothers story. And we'll probably have to add another onto this story. But yeah, I just, <laughs> I just went nuts with that. Stop. So that's awesome. What did you say the uh, documentary is called? It's called Standing in the Shadows of Motown, and it's uh, yeah yeah it's like a play on like there's a song Standing in the Shadow of Love, and it's recorded by them. Anyways, oh. it's it's kind of like a play on that and the fact clever. that clever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's a clever clever title. It's also a book that uh, uh, has a lot of uh, tips for bass players in it, which is kind of fun. Oh. <laughs> yeah, because it changed bass playing forever. Yeah. I wonder if I could play bass. It's am, one of those, am I funky enough? It, it's one of those things where, uh, like, a lot of people kind of think about it as like guitar for dummies, and then. When you start getting into stuff like this, it's like the hardest instrument in the world. <laughs> like it's it's so fucking hard. Like these guys are playing at a level like I've told you, Travis's dad plays upright bass and electric bass and like is into this style of music and has played since he was like a teenager and like gigs and like plays like four times a week kind of thing. Right. I I don't think he's close to being as good as this kind of thing. like it's it's fucking crazy how good these guys were and they were like in their 20s just fucking winging it Re recording daily yeah recording like 10 hours a day every day oh, that'll help. <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> but i mean mad yeah yeah like talk about the 10,000 hours thing like i mean people point to the beatles doing that when they did their their munich back and forth thing and they probably put in about that much but Funk Brothers did it quicker, I think. <laughs> they played a lot of music. But yeah, that, that's my story, basically, of the most underappreciated band in the world. Like, I, I can't think of any band that's more underappreciated. Maybe Hoobastank. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, they've recorded more number one hits than anybody. They're oh. the most popular band of all time. Well, that's pretty appreciated then, isn't it? Maybe give the title to, oh, I don't know, another band from Detroit. <laughs> Fuck that. Funk Brothers. I'm down with the fun. Yeah, yeah, Funk Brothers changed everything. Is it just, yeah, I feel like everyone needed to know that story. That was my, my basis for bringing that whole, whole See, thing. I, into I learned about mix. funk fairly early because of ICP as well. Like, one of their earliest songs has a George Clinton sample. And, yeah. And, and 
like an extensive sample, not just a beat or two, right? Yeah. And uh, and they'd always talk about him in interviews and stuff like that, and they even had him on the radio show once. So I kind of began researching and learning. Like I'm not like a yeah a devoted big fan. George Clinton. Yeah, fan, yeah. but I, I've seen him live now at least once, maybe even twice. Yeah. Because of gatherings and. That was pretty fantastic. Like he's a ridiculous live show. I watched part of it on a Ferris wheel. Yeah, he, he's like a, he's like a good wine. He ages well. Like George Clinton gets crazier and funner the older he gets. Yeah. Like I, I can't think of a better example of that. Like he just gets wild. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He, he's got a strange like manic joy to him. Yeah. Well, I like him because he appreciates rap as well, and that's like a lot of those guys of that generation are kind of like resistant to it because it feels like. You know what I mean? Like, they're like, ah, we used to play our own instruments. Yeah. Kind of thing. And, like, I feel like he really embraced it. Like, there's not a lot of guys who did that mm-hmm. from that time period. Like, I know, like, Lionel Richie's not the biggest supporter of rap music, and that's kind of unfortunate. Yeah, so many aren't. Yeah, yeah. It, yeah, it's, it kind of sucks. So, that is my Motown story. Uh, I could probably throw in a couple other music stories, but... Uh, yeah, which you think of? Well, okay. I have a few options here because I, I don't know. There's a couple of things that are like. Are any of them set in Detroit? Uh, Detroit, Detroit. You know what? I don't think I do have any any good ones from Detroit. Um. You know what? Fuck this. I'm going to do. I'm gonna go way off base, hmm. and I'm going to do. Charles Bronson. So, not the actor, but the fighter Charles Bronson. The fighter slash prisoner Charles Bronson. There's another Charles Bronson? Beyond beyond him, yes. Uh, uh, Charles Bronson, okay. So, yeah. Oh, what? Yeah, okay. <laughs> and we're back from a break that I didn't know was happening until way too late. There's another Charles Bronson? There is another Charles Bronson. Glad that you asked. <laughs> um, so, this guy was, uh, he, he's a man in the UK. Uh, he was born in Luden. I, I'm not exactly sure where that is. Uh, you have a guy that you know in the UK, right? But he's from yeah, Wales. Never yeah, mind. Yeah, it's a totally different thing. Okay, so, yeah, Luton's just some weird-ass town. I get the impression it's kind of like Boston. Okay, like, in, like, England, though? Yeah, yeah, in the UK. And so, like, my, my impression of it is it's kind of like one of those, like, hard scrabble streets town, you know, where kids fight at, like, the right. age of 10 pretty brutally and their parents just watch. <laughs> okay, kind of thing. So this guy um, wasn't originally named Charles Bronson. Uh, I'll see if I could actually get his real name. I kind of forget it because it's, like, Richard or something. Anyways, I'll just say his fucking name's Richard. I'm never going to refer to him again <laughs> as a real name. So, anyways, this guy is growing up in the streets, getting into fights, doing his thing, doing what every kid does in Luton, apparently. And he's, like, ripping stores off and, like, robbing old women on the streets and, like, beating up other children. And <laughs> Like a young Antilla Ambrose. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just, just fucking living his life. And um, one day, as a, as a young man, he decides that he's going to... Uh, armed rob uh, a jewelry store and uh, ends up getting caught um, it, it caught after running this is okay this is the other detail so he he robs a jewelry store goes out and he's wearing like like uh, work attire I think he was like gonna look for a job so he's wearing like, dress shoes and like a suit okay he's trying to go straight and he ends up robbing a jewelry store instead and like just taking the cash not taking any jewelry taking the cash out of it, here's the police sirens coming, and runs like 36 kilometers back to his house in dress <laughs> And is eventually caught back at his house because somebody recognized him. Anyways, he goes to prison. He went pretty far, and he still got recognized. It's a small place. Like, it's, it's one of those, like, he basically ran around looting. It's <laughs> <laughs> my impression. Um, so he was 19 when he was jailed. And uh, he had a very short-term sentence. It was something like a year and a half or something like that in, in prison. It was, it was nothing. Why was this poor street urchin at 19 years old wearing dress shoes? 
<laughs> I think it was because like somebody was like, you gotta go. It's like Boston, where it's like, I'm sure his parents were like well off. He was still like fighting people and robbing places. He just pulled an agent in Doggy Village. Yeah, he's just a fucking savage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh, this guy ends up going to prison and, uh, y- y- you know, like, uh, he ends up getting an extended sentence for, like, beating somebody up in prison. It's just kind of like the standard stuff. Gets let out on parole. Right. And he's out on parole um, and goes, like, I'm going to go straight. And I'm going to set my life on track. And he, like, gets with this girl and ends up having a kid. And uh, he's like, oh, like, everything's going great. But he decides, man, I need some extra money. So he starts bare-knuckle boxing. <laughs> because that's, Excellent. that's what he knows how to do, right? So he ends up getting set up in this bare knuckle boxing um, organization where it's like they just get random street people in. They, they take their shirts off, people put down money, winner takes a cut, and then the guy who set it up takes a cut. Yeah. They're fighting in like barns and like wild animals running around while they're beats <laughs> slugging each other. It's, it's, it's like that, uh, if you've ever seen the movie Snatch. Like, is that kind of thing where, like, Brad Pitt was fighting, where, like, people are getting knocked into tanks of water and stuff yeah. like that. And this guy is, like, a known savage in the, like, he's, like, busting people's teeth out, like, fish-hooking people's, like, mouths open and stuff like that. And eventually, the promoter's like, fuck, man, you need a stage name. You're so good. So that's when he is, decides to start calling himself Charles Bronson after the actor from Death Wish. <laughs> Which... You know, love it or hate the movies, it's a badass name, especially for that time period. This is, uh, I believe in the 80s. I want to say 80s, 90s. I don't have the exact dates down, but anyways. Um, he eventually ends up committing some other petty crime. I think he, like, breaks parole or something like that. Okay. And ends up heading back to prison because he's... Whatever. At this point, he's Charles Bronson, expert fighter. <laughs> Going into prison with a chip on his shoulder. Is he a naturally pretty big guy? Um, at, at this point, he's just kind of like, he's been working out because he fights kind of thing. And he's been pretty obsessed with keeping himself in good condition to fight well. So, like... A fighter's body. Fighter's body. Yeah, yeah, one of those, like, he has a little bit of a gut at this point. But he's still, like, young. He's, like, 20, 21 or something. Yeah. And just, like crushing people with that type of body right so like you could imagine where he's at anyways well he's in prison he ends up uh starting fights with people finds out like there's a guy who's in there who's like uh like for child molestation and decides well this guy's gotta get his ass kicked nice and just decides to beat the living shit out of this guy fucks up his face so bad the guy needs reconstructive surgery <laughs> Uh, Charles Bronson has funny quotes about this, uh, where he say like, "Yep, I saw that guy and had to ruin his face." <laughs> and he's just like, "Mission accomplished." He's man. just real matter of fact. Is like he saw he saw his face and he was like, "That face is gonna get destroyed." <laughs> Fuck, what an animal! Yeah, he, he's a fucking savage at this point. So, uh, he, at that point, he gets another tacked-on sentence to. to to being in prison and he's like oh fuck like what am i gonna do i got like three more years on this so he decides you know what the prison guards are kind of against me fuck them i i'm gonna fight one of these prison guards so, so <laughs> at some point he's like the prison guard that he hates i just kind of noticed him one day and he's like well that's it i'm gonna beat the shit out of this guy just goes over starts wailing on this dude beating the utter shit out of this prison guard all the other guys have to pull him off and at this point, he gets another 10 years tacked onto his sentence. <sighs> Things are getting rough for Charles Bronson. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't the best choice, though. And so now he's become infamous in prison, and, uh, and everyone else in prison knows him as Charles Bronson, the guy who fights everybody. And yeah. basically, they're setting up like, like he's the guy where if somebody new comes in, has an attitude, he's going to kick the shit out of them. If somebody does something he finds disrespectful, he's going to kick the shit out of them. And he starts getting this weird reputation from all of the, the staff at the prison as, like, this lunatic. This Who's going to beat the shit out of Yeah, yeah. And so Charles Bronson kind of leans into this and goes, like, you know what? If they think I'm a lunatic and my niche here in prison is fighting, I'm going to become the strongest, best fighter ever kind of thing. 
So he starts working out like nonstop, like selling like cigarettes to get somebody's extra meal so that he could get extra calories to <laughs> weight and shit like that. Eating like porridge all day and like just fucking putting on pounds and working out constantly and like in in the gym at this point in uh, in the prison. And uh, at one point he's like, well, this is looking pretty bleak for me. I'm, I'm in here for like 13 years <laughs> to, to go or whatever. Um, I think I'm going to start a prison riot. Because <laughs> he's bored. Right? You might as well. But instead of just doing a normal, like, he's not just going to go like, oh, I'm going to like beat a guy up and start going nuts and like whatever. He's like, I got to plan this fucking thing out. So he gets, uh, he, he saves up grease from one of his jobs. It's like uh, cooking oil. And uh, he brings it back to his cell, like hidden, stripped totally nude, covers himself in the grease, and starts swearing and cursing out the guard right outside of the door. <laughs> he waits until his guard comes in and just goes at the guy like a UFC style. Like, takes his <laughs> legs, goes fucking nuts, just wailing on this guy. Other dudes come in to try and get him. He's fucking greased up and he's slipping out. Right? <laughs> so he slips away from these guys. There's like three guys in his cell. He Closes the door, locks them in the cell, goes out, starts letting out other prisoners and getting them all riled up. <laughs> and so now fully he, nude and oiled the whole time. Fully nude and oiled the whole time. Everyone in the prison's fucking losing it, going nuts, trying to escape, jumping all over the place, destroying property. And the guards are going nuts. They're in riot gear at this point. They're like clubbing people. But Charles Bronson's ready for this, so he's like punching people in the face that have the shields on it, <laughs> grabbing people's nightsticks, beating them over the face with it. <laughs> Just going absolutely berserker on these people. Eventually, everything gets calmed down, and uh, and Charles Bronson is detained. He's put in solitary confinement, where he will spend... Do you know how they eventually put him down? I, I think it was just surrounding him and beating him. <laughs> but they, I think at one point they just realized he was their biggest threat and stopped dividing up to fight all the prisoners. <laughs> we just got to take this guy out and then that's it. That's what you got to do when you have a titan on the field. <laughs> so, so, th so this guy's just fucking a lunatic. So they're like, we got to put this guy in solitary. They do it more as a statement. They're like, you got five years in solitary, which is brutal when you think about that. You're in an 8 by 12 cell. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you have a bed that's made of stone with a like a cot thing on it. You have a towel and you have a toilet, which is <laughs> fucked up, right? Like that's all you got. And so, while he's in there, he decides that um, he's going to get obsessed with fitness. And this is the point where this is where my introduction of Charles Bronson came. I got his fitness book that he wrote in solitary confinement, <laughs> <laughs> and it is the most insane book I've ever read in my life. He the one of the first lines in it is, um, the biggest thing to remember about working out is you need to stay hydrated, and if you have no access to water, drink your own piss. <laughs> <laughs> that was that was in the first, the opening of the book. <laughs> the book proceeds. Well, it sets a tone, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, it proceeds to get crazier. Where he like thing says things where it's like you don't want to be fat because fat people stink, <laughs> and he's like Jesus Christ, <laughs> like. Most most workout books that are like, I'm here to get you in order. Here's your workout plan are pretty positive. Yeah. This one was like, if you don't follow me, I'll personally find you and beat your ass. <laughs> you fat, stinking Yeah, you ass. fat, stinking piece of shit. He's <laughs> like, fat people are lazy, they stink, and nobody likes them. Good lord. <laughs> just like, you're just like, Jesus. This is so brutal. But like, Says the man in solitary confinement. But let me tell you, I followed the book's instructions, and fuck, man, it's a good book. It teaches you, like, most of those workout things kind of sell you on an idea. He doesn't make any fucking money from this thing. So all the workout stuff is free, and it's all, like, grab it like a towel and pull it as tight as you can between your two arms. Hold it for 10 seconds. Do that 20 times in a row. And, like, yeah. Because he's figuring out ways to work out in solitary confinement. He doesn't yeah. have a weight set. Yeah, all he has is a stone bed a mattress, a towel, and a toilet, and 8 by 12 space to do everything. So he gets cardio in there, he gets like all sorts of shit. Uh, the biggest one is his push-ups, because he thinks, like push-ups don't make your biceps big, they make your triceps big, and triceps are the punching strength one. Yeah. So he's obsessed with push-ups, he eventually hits a record, of, I, I want to say it's, it's above a thousand, but it's like a thousand thirty-six 
or something like that, push-ups a day. Jeez. And uh, if you read his book, he puts you into a position to do 110 push-ups a day, which is insane. And I got to that point. I did 110 push-ups a day for like a month, which is nuts. But, uh, and it's possible, like his workout plan is brilliant. Like it is perfect. It's just hard. Yeah. And uh, so anyways, I got really I assume time-consuming as well. This is a man in solitary. Yeah. Yeah, you carve up about 20, 30 minutes a day. That's it's not horrible, but like among some of the exercises, it gets weird. Like I, I committed one hundred percent because uh, he told you if you didn't commit one hundred percent, you're a pussy. <laughs> so, so, so I just kind of didn't like, want to be a pussy. I gotta do it, but I like set out. I'm gonna follow absolutely strict. I'm gonna do everything, but some of the workouts got fucking bizarre. Like there's there's one where it was cut a tennis ball in half, put it in your mouth, and chew on it. Because you need strong jaw muscles to bite people when you're in fights. You can do without that one. He also had one where you put a wet towel over your erect penis <laughs> and like pump it up with like like doing reps with your penis and a wet towel. Do you not do that? Well, I had to during this book. Yeah. But like he did that. That's good advice, man. Yeah. That's an important muscle. Because he's like, you need that muscle to be toned and all this stuff. He had one where you pushed around a tennis ball with your chin around on the ground on all fours. To How many tennis balls did he have in solitary confinement? Is that what they gave him? Yeah, well, apparently. Tennis balls? Yeah, apparently they allow you tennis balls as like a recreational thing in that cell. Did he have books? Uh, yeah, he did have books. He had oh, it's not that books. bad then, is it? Yeah, all, all he did was read fitness magazines and nutrition books. You get your choice then, or is that all you can have? Uh, yeah, no, he, he, he got his choice, but like oh, it's, it's strict enough that it's kind so, of like... Solitary is nothing. Yeah, yeah, other than just losing your mind in there. You got books, would you? This Stop is there. true. You can read a book. So, other than that, he also decides, you know what, that last prison riot was nothing. I'm going to start more prison riots. Somehow it's going to work from, from solitary confinement. So he does this thing where he gets in the habit of figuring out how to grease himself up nude and get riot cops coming in because he's having a mental breakdown. And then he just starts beating the shit out of riot cops. Are they also giving him grease? <laughs> so, so I don't know how the fuck he's getting this grease because <laughs> he consistently keeps on saying he gets grease and I don't know where the hell he gets that <laughs> when he's in solitary but he's getting grease from somewhere and in uh, one of these instances he takes a hostage for 10 days and it was a guy who was like an Iranian terrorist who was in there for terrorism I guess and um, so it's him and this Iranian guy in a room for 10 days and the guy doesn't speak English and he's just, this guy's terrified. And apparently the whole time he's like, the guards are outside trying to negotiate with him. And he's like yelling like things like, you better send in a sandwich or else I'm gonna eat this man. <laughs> and things like that. And people are like, Jesus, I don't know if he, he might actually eat this man. Did they send in a sandwich? Yeah, they eventually sent in a sandwich, uh, art supplies, because he was really into art, so he just started painting and all this. And so some of his, his like, arts and sketches are in the, the book, the, the workout book, and they're like the scribblings of a madman. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and, and so uh, there's, there's a funny quote in the book, because I didn't know about this whole story when I was reading it, but he just offhandedly says like, oh yeah, and like, yeah, you're gonna do like, today you're going to do 80 squats. And if you think that's hard, try doing it with an Iranian on your back. <laughs> and then just next sentence. And I was like, what the fuck does that mean? And then when I like researched him more, I was like, oh, he took this guy hostage and used him as workout equipment. <laughs> like he was like bench pressing this man and like doing squats with him on his shoulders and shit. No sympathy for this terrorist, but that would be a pretty terrifying... <laughs> yeah, and this man's like, I'm going to eat you. <laughs> like, it's just fucking terrifying. Like, I'm going to use you. In the meantime, you. I'm using you as a tool. Yeah, yeah. And I'm nude and covered in grease. <laughs> <laughs> and drawing crazy pictures of me shitting in people's mouths. That was his art? Yeah, his art is all him beating people up and screaming into new women's vaginas. Like, like it looks... <laughs> His his art looks like um, if Fritz the cat was drawn by a prisoner. <laughs> like it's just big-breasted pigs and like like caricatures of himself, like like with muscly veins popping out, like screaming into women's vaginas and like, <laughs> punching people and like doing crazy shit. 
Does it say what he's screaming? Is there speech bubbles? Yeah, there's speech bubbles just being like, fuck you, you fucking cocksucker. <laughs> just like, yeah, yeah. Like, he is a weird dude who is admittedly, like, if this was art of a man who wasn't in prison, I'd be like, this is some pretty fucking cool art. <laughs> some weird shit. Could be an album cover. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's kind of like gets it like the heavy metal kind of sensibilities, like that type of art. But, um, yeah, so during this time, uh, during this prison riot time, he, uh, <laughs> that phase. There's a couple of things that he's known for that, that are pretty incredible feats of strength. And uh, this is reported by the guards, not by him. Like, this isn't him bragging. This is the guards saying this is what he did during riots. He bent prison bars with his bare hands. This <laughs> is fucking insane. He punched through bulletproof glass and bench pressed an Iranian. <laughs> fucking crazy things. But, yeah, this man's a fucking lunatic. He's, like, biting people and, like, doing crazy shit. During, like, his rules are there are no rules. He will grab your penis and twist. I would really like to think that that's exactly how the guard reported it. Like, this man is insanely strong. I've seen him bend steel bars, punch through bulletproof glass, and bench press an Iranian. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's how I imagine it. But these are the basic reports. And so, at some point, he stages the biggest prison riot he's staged yet. Where it, it takes like it sounds like twenty days or something like that. Where the prison prisoners are running the prison and police and like the national guard basically like the british equivalent are surrounding the prison is this guy essentially bane yeah yeah you well fun fact is the guy who played bane in that batman movie played uh the one with the stupid voice okay (laughs) that that one that's tom hardy he played charles bronson in the charles bronson biopic was that before or after before Uh, yeah yeah probably how they spotted him probably yeah (laughs) he's very similar yeah very similar uh uh, acting roles too, but um, so during this one cra- uh, crazy ride, that there's helicopters circling it, national news. The Queen is concerned about this at this point because this man is a menace to society. <laughs> and so during this, he is on the roof of the prison, taking shingles off and throwing them at people down below, and just screaming obscenities at them. At some point, he does a headstand on the edge of the roof, like standing on his head with his arms at his side. Like like a fucking lunatic, <laughs> just to show off. Like, hey, fuck you guys, you can't do anything. Eventually, I'm down. yeah. Eventually, they detain him. They like tear gas him, take him away. This is when things get a little wacky with Charles Bronson, and I think that this is where, other than the fact that he's a fucking lunatic and hilarious, he becomes a sympathetic figure because Charles Bronson is now given life in solitary confinement. Oh. At orders by the queen. Wow. So this is something that can't be overturned. This is a... He's in solitary confinement for life. Mm-hmm. Um, it gets stricter. He gets older. He's still alive, by the way, but he's changed his name to Charles Salvador because he's obsessed with Salvador Dali now and wants to call himself a painter rather than a fighter. <laughs> which is soft. Which Yeah, which is odd. He's still a lunatic. But, like... He, like, he got married to a woman on the outside and, like, sells his paintings through her kind of thing and uh, basically sets up her life through his paintings. That was just kind of neat and kind of charming about him. But, yeah, the unfortunate thing is, like, he spent, like, I think at this point over 40 years in solitary confinement. He's like an old man. He's a fucking ripped old man. <laughs> he, he looks like a lunatic, too. Like Vince McMahon? Yeah, like, he's like a ripped guy with, like, a beard down to his belly, like, bald, with, like, those circle sunglasses. Because he has to wear sunglasses because he doesn't get natural light. Oh, okay. So, like, when he's, like, out in, like, sun, he, like, can't see or in, like, normal lighting conditions. They take him out to show him off sometimes. Well, he's allowed to go in this area where he could, like, run, but it's like a cage. It's like what Hannibal Lecter was in. Oh, okay. (laughs) And they're like, yeah, it's fucking, like, demeaning as fuck. But they take this guy and let him, like, get some, like, exercise, otherwise it would be illegal. But, uh, yeah, like, in my opinion, this guy is, A, he went to prison for robbery and breaching for all. All of the other, everything else was in prison. Yeah. So, I mean, like, take that how you will, but, I mean, like, in my opinion, if you let this guy out, he wouldn't be dangerous. You don't think you'd want to start a riot? 
what, why? Like, I think he's just, like, frustrated by being in prison, more or less. And, like, he's a lunatic, but I mean, like, a lot of people are lunatics. But I want to see this guy out, and I want to see him fight George St. Pierre. <laughs> <laughs> I want to see, or Brock Lesnar. Charles Bronson that, versus Brock Lesnar. That seems slightly more fair, yeah. Yeah, yeah, just lunatics who are super strong fighting each other. And How old is he now? He's probably in his, like, 70s. Oh. Yeah. He's still incredibly strong. <laughs> like, this guy, like, when you see pictures of him, you're like, Jesus Christ. His shoulders, <laughs> like, go up to his ears. Like, he, he's like the Brock Lesnar type, where it's like he doesn't have a neck because of his muscles going so high. Yeah, you the, really can work out anywhere, hey? Yeah, yeah, well, and the guy's an inspiration. I would say, honestly, to anyone who thinks that you have to go to a gym to get a workout, buy his book, Solitary Fitness. That book changed my life. Like, well, I'm Where saying, did you get an Iranian? and wet dick towels yeah yeah i still use a lot of his techniques to this day like i work out exclusively at home because i think like uh, gyms are a scam yeah but uh, i i still to this day use the towel one uh there's a few towel exercises where it's just pulling a towel like like kind of like a uh, like elastic band kind of idea but just like at like different ways with your arms and it's one of the hardest fucking workouts I've ever had in my life and like push-ups invaluable knowing how to do push-ups because he was the first like I don't know if you knew like when you were in school do you remember doing push-ups and like you'd be like do 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 people would be like you gotta like stop putting your butt in the air kind of thing and like yeah. there's all these uh, stupid rules yeah. and it seemed like too easy or like kids wouldn't dip right or whatever and everyone was like panicked about the form well, I did Taekwondo, and they were pretty strict about how to do push-ups. Yeah, yeah. It, well, and that's that's what got me on that the first time. It's like, I kind of thought his push-ups is this, like, stupid, like, kind of too hard to do them kind of thing. And his thing was, do them as slow as you can, and do them until your face touches the floor, and then do them on the way back, because that way you know that you're not cheating. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, like, as soon as you do it like that, you're like, oh, yeah, fuck, this is a real workout. And doing- form is way more important than numbers, yeah. Yeah, yeah, well, and just, like, doing it slow and hard and doing it the hard way. And that's always his methodology is, like, it doesn't matter how many you do. It matters how difficult they are to do. L- like, if you're doing squats, do them on one leg. If you're doing squats on one leg and it's too tough, hold weights in your hands. If you don't have weights in your hands, hold a giant box. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> kind of thing. Like, if squats are t- too easy on one leg, do squats where you jump afterwards on one leg. You know, like, things like that. Where, like, there's always a way to make things harder. And, yeah. like, people just get lazy and going, like, oh, I'm going to go on a treadmill and, like, walk on a treadmill. I'm getting exercise. Fuck that. And, like, honestly, like, there needs to be more people like him and his advice. And I don't know. It really changed my viewpoint. I used to be one of those guys who scoffed at people who worked out. And that was, like, my first, like... I would, like, lift weights at home just kind of casually. But that was my first introduction to, like, this is a big deal. People Could you do a one-legged out. squat? I could do a one-legged squat, yeah. I could do a one-legged squat with weights. Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds difficult. I have incredibly strong legs for having really thin legs. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, one-legged squats are tough because of the balance. And when you put weights my in My balance hands, is okay. Tough. I just don't know if I could do that stand-up part yeah i'm gonna try that after this it's tough and it depends on what type of squats you're doing too there's like uh there's ones called hindu squats and what's called like just standard squats standard squats where your knees go forwards hindu squats where your knees go out like a like a frog i think i do a combination of those two yeah i like to do hindu squats more just because i feel like my knees don't get as fucked up that way but uh yeah i think i would do a solid like 45 five ankle squat yeah, yeah, that's that, that's a standard squat for sure, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah, this, this guy fucking just changed everything about how I, how I saw um, working out. I, granted, later I picked up weights, but there was like a good two years that I worked out with just stuff from around the house. Would you frame a painting of his? For sure. I, I, <laughs> I would buy a painting of his in a second. It's just like they're a little expensive, like, Probably, as yeah. you can imagine. But, but yeah, he, his... His story is one of my favorites ever because he's like I consider him a national treasure kind of thing, even though he's not from our nation. But like national treasure, he should honestly be out of prison. And there's petitions you could go sign to get Bronson out of prison. When I'm in England, should I wear a Bronson shirt? Fuck yeah, yeah, yeah. He he is. Your dog is doing tricks as if to tell us that he is the new Charles Bronson. <laughs> well, he's been walking for about a minute now. Yeah, he's walking on two legs right now. Sideways. Sideways. 
doing one-legged squats. <laughs> <laughs> Good boy, Bobby. Come here. Like an absolute monster beast. <laughs> I've trained him well. Yeah. Well, that's my story about Charles Bronson. Charles Bronson, I mean, I don't know if he'd be completely harmless to society, but I'd have a beer with him. Put him in the octagon. Sure, I mean, <laughs> this seems to be going even crueler than solitary, <laughs> yeah. like Roman Coliseum type punishments. But at least he'd be happy. Yeah, I think he sees a lot of those people on the outside and goes, I could kick their ass. Probably. Yeah. Or is he exposed? Is he good media? He gets, like, like magazines and articles and stuff, so I think he, like, kind of knows about the UFC. Hmm. But yeah. And would love to step in. Oh, I think he would. Well, I don't know anymore because he's a painter now, but... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Super the one time Bronson would. Yeah, no, and he would be, yeah, he'd be a menace. Um, but, but, but yeah, I'm going to quickly, like, uh, this article pulled up. I was going to use it as reference, didn't use it much, but I'm just going to go through, just make sure that I didn't uh, miss anything that was, like, really important here because there's a couple of insane facts about him that I want to make sure I'm not missing. Uh, How tall is he? Uh, 5'10", five ten, uh, five ten, yeah. Okay. Uh, do, 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 do. Uh, yeah, he, he's bent metal cell doors with his bare hands. Uh, he has a training regime that includes up to 3,000 push-ups a day. Um, he's 210 pounds, 5'10", and holds six world records for feats of strength and fitness. How do you manage that? You can set them in prison by just having a guy who records world records coming oh. to prison, yeah. Do you, does it say what they are? Uh, it's most uh, push-ups in one day, most push-ups in one week. Uh, it's things like that, like like sit-ups and things. I can't remember all of them, but it doesn't say in this article. But he also holds the unofficial record for most prison, prison rooftop protests in UK history. <laughs> Not in world history? Just in UK history. Just insane. Uh, yeah, yeah. It, he he has an infamous hostage incident in 1998 when he took two Iraqi hijackers and another inmate hostage in uh, Iraqi, London. not Iranian. Yeah, I thought it was. Yeah, I was wrong. He might have said Iranian, but uh, he insists his hostage uh, hostages call him the general. He told negotiators that he would eat one of his victims before demanding a helicopter to Cuba along with a cheese and a cheese and pickle sandwich. <laughs> In 2000, he was jailed and convicted for holding a teacher hostage for nearly two days uh, during a siege at Hull Prison. Uh, he's a cartoonist. He has 11 books. Da, 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 da. Yeah, married, released, and had a biopic. Yeah, yeah, I basically covered the rest of that. But yeah, he, he, he holds world records like most push-ups in a day and like things like that, like somewhere over 3,000. Yeah, it's fucking it's fucking crazy, and it's like not um, it's not consecutive. That's that's the trick, right? It's like when you're doing push-ups in a day, uh, you can't do them consecutive. Like most people, the most you can do consecutive is like 100, 200 maybe, kind yeah. of thing. But like he he does this method where he goes like do 40, do 38, do 36, do 30, <laughs> 34. He, down it by two every time so that you feel less fatigued each time until you do two for the final one and then you add all those up and you're like that's a lot of fucking push-ups so who do you think is better at push-ups than him or a push-up guy oh this this guy for sure charles bronson does push-up guy has records doesn't he <laughs> he claimed he did he went to katrina's uh, <laughs> elementary school and motivational spoke while drunk <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's just naturally that way. Yeah. Um, but I think he did at least have records at some point. Maybe Charles Bronson beat them. Charles Bronson can do push-ups, one, one-armed push-ups, like in a handstand position. <laughs> yeah, he's a fucking lunatic. He's like a circus performer. Yeah, it's like a gorilla. Yeah, yeah. But the, oh, that, that's the other fact that I didn't mention. Before he was doing the bare-knuckle boxing, the other thing he worked as is a circus strongman. Like being one of those guys who fucking lifts barbells and like that would have been his calling. Yeah, yeah. He should have stuck with that. Well, if you've ever seen pictures of him, he's a bald guy with a handlebar mustache, like one of those twirly handlebar mustaches. Like he looks like a circus strongman. He stuck with it. Yeah, yeah. Like he is the epitome of what that looks like. So. uh... Like a white iron cheek. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. He looks almost identical to the iron cheek, (laughs) except less fat. But um, so. uh, And he will humble you. (laughs) 
Y oh, yeah. I'll eat you, too. <laughs> Don't want to stop like that. So uh, let's do some plugs. What do you got? What do you got rolling, Brad? Um, I got my standard ones, and I'll give it another. Sh I'll give another shout out. It is the same day to uh, Fearless Red Fury and Flip the Rat, the new albums from ICP. Uh, fourth Joker's card of the second deck. St stellar stuff. If you're at all down with the clowns, even if you listen to them long ago, haven't listened to them in a while, this is a really interesting album. Almost sounds a little bit '90s style. I definitely recommend you check it out. Um, as for my own scene, bradoink.com, of course. Check it out for blogs, reviews of those albums, and um, regular updates of my book. I've got a signing for Edgar's Worth Sunday coming up on March 30th at Chapter Strathcona. So come on down, pick a book up, or like we talked about before, grab one on Amazon. Reviews are always appreciated. And, uh, of course, uh, shout out to Shite Night as well. Yeah. <laughs> just to steal yours. Um, Check it out. We watch old movies. Sometimes we comment on them. We give summaries. Um, great place to learn about uh, just r rare, unknown, shitty movies. Movies that somebody had a dream and, you know, the Wright Brothers plane just crashed. <laughs> <laughs> it's watching dreams die and it's fun. So check that out. And uh, I will kind of tie in my weird, uh, weird fact of, of the, the podcast with uh, something kind of related to Shite Night. Is... Uh, the BTK killer yeah. was active during the filming of King Kung Fu in the same city where King Kung Fu was shot. Hmm. So when you're watching King Kung Fu, you are seeing the city that BTK was terrorizing at the same time the ape was terrorizing it. Do you think the people of that city, with all the fear and the stress that they were enduring, really needed this ape running around? Yeah, I think it, I, I, I wanted two things. Either... They, it is exactly what Wichita needed was an ape movie to clear their heads from the BTK <laughs> Reign of Terror, or the ticket sales at King Kung Fu were d destroyed by the fact that people were afraid that BTK was lurking. And no that's one wanted why, to get bound, tortured, and killed. That's why that movie didn't do well. <laughs> it's because of BTK. Do you think the director like still blames him? Fucking BTK. I would have had For me, it. it's personal. My theory is that the ape is BTK. <laughs> Dennis Rader played that ape. Probably. Yeah. So so just just something to think of if you ever watch the movie. Well, if you go to Shite Night and watch our review of uh, King Kung Fu, you can watch it and see a man in an ape costume terrorize Wichita, Kansas, and in the finale, climb the tallest building in Wichita, <laughs> which is the Holiday Inn, which is five stories tall, before he is finally taken down by a sheriff that talks like John Wayne. And you also hear incredible quotes like the following, which may be me reenacting or it may be an actual clip from the show. You'll never know. Now we'll have a karate fight. Me, the karate. You, the karate, me, the karate. <laughs> yeah, the karate and the karate. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and also the ape doing random things like terrorizing a grocery store, going, time to make like a banana and split. Running away. A man gets fake bug eyes <laughs> from seeing a hot woman. There's like plastic googly eyes in his head for a second. It's a fucking lunatic movie, and I suggest anyone who could find a copy of King Kung Fu go out and get it. It is one of my favorite movies. It's worth it. It was way up on the top of my shiny list as well. And let me just tell you, whatever was in the water at uh, in Wichita, Kansas during those years, <laughs> for better or for worse, yeah. put it put it on the map. Russia should be kidnapping that water. Yes, yes. All right, Brad. Can I get a whoop whoop? Whoop whoop. <laughs>